Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we're speaking with three contest winners. We're here in Hollywood at the Roosevelt Hotel, and we're in the middle of the Writers of the Future workshop week. So starting from the gentleman on my left, your name and the volume you're being published in and what your story is. Uh, my name is Storm Humbert. I am, be- I am published in Writers of the Future volume 36, and my story is Stolen Sky. And my name is Luke Wildman. I am in 37, and my story is How to Steal the Plot Armor. I'm Zach B. I'm also in volume 36, and my story is As Able to Air. So these are all, I mean, obviously they're amazing stories. I've read them all. I proofread them all, and uh, I read them again. <laughs> so, um, so obviously you're here because you are as able the writer. Yes. Uh, yes. So um, first of all, let's just go then on... on how did you originally find out about Writers of the Future? How was it that it became something that you were interested in, in entering? So I was doing my MFA at Temple, and one of the instructors there is Chip, Samuel R. Delaney, Chip. And he recommended the contest. He said it's a major contest. It's quarterly. It gives you a deadline. Mm-hmm. And that was, he said it's, it's a good tool to right. get you to produce and get you to send something in new every quarter. Great. Yeah, so for several years, I've been looking for a stepping stone that would elevate me from being an amateur and would elevate me from just sort of having writing as a hobby to something that would give me some exposure and give me the tools to build a career out of it. So while I was in college, a friend who had won, um, I believe she was a finalist uh, in the contest, she told me about it and suggested I submit. So I started submitting every quarter. Um, I did that for four and a half years and eventually won. Awesome. Yeah. Um, my Mine was less uh, direct than that. I I kind of wrote in college and had did a, did a minor in creative writing, then stopped writing after college for a while, focusing on music, focusing on work and other things, counseling and such. And then I suddenly got you know, rocketed back into science fiction because I read some stories in Clark's World. I literally just clicked, like, hyperlinked to Clark's World somehow, which is a magazine. Right. And I found Writers of the Future. The very first author I read, I, and I unfortunately can't remember who it was at this point, in their bio it said Writers of the Future. And I was like, what is that? And I went on the website, and at the time I was starting to think about building a list of places to submit to. That was in someone's bio, so I put on a list. I started submitting, and I very slowly picked up on, oh, this is a bigger thing than just another magazine. This is all. This is a whole thing. And I, and I stumbled into the forum, which a lot of people use, and found that whole community. And I submitted maybe, I don't know, I submitted over two years, however many times. I guess like you know seven or eight times. And on the last one, I, I won. Yeah, That's place. great. Yeah, because I remember when you were doing the, we did the Zoom interviews, you had all the, the band equipment behind you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of band equipment in, in the room where I was doing the, the Zoom stuff. Yeah. yeah. That had my attention for a long time. That was my sort of creative outlet. Um, but then I kind of t- t- maybe took a portion of that and started applying it to writing. And it's actually been, found some success doing it. And uh, Writers of the Future is definitely, uh, feels like the biggest, you know. Yeah. Kind of well, it's, it's grown. I mean, we're. We just finished contest year 38 on September 30th, and now we're 
the contest is running for volume for year 39 now. So it's definitely survived the trial by fire, you know, and um, if anybody doesn't know about it, as soon as they start looking at it and finding out about it, they go like, wow, this is, it's, it's legitimate. It's for real, you know. Yeah, a lot of my favorite authors have gotten their start through it. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss and Nadia Corfor, uh, mm-hmm. David Farland. Yeah, they've. Uh, we definitely have Eric Flint, who's who's here. I, I don't know if he's spoken to you yet or not. He spoke, yeah, Today. with his sixteen thirty two series, and you know he became then a judge. You know, after ten years after actually winning the contest, and now he's got his own publishing house too. Yeah. So, so you've been here for. I mean, we're getting close to the end of. There's still a lot of workshopping to be done, and we're going to do the last thing we'll do on Saturday is I, I do a whole seminar on on PR, how to do social and radio, TV, print, bookstore signings all that kind of stuff, how to do, how to pitch a story, all that type of stuff. But how's it gone for you so far? Um, so far, I've, I've really loved it. I felt like I've learned a lot, uh, especially the first two days with when it was uh, just Dave and Tim uh-huh. uh, giving us all that stuff and then doing the 24-hour story. That was all really useful, especially for me because I haven't written short fiction pretty much since I won the contest. I wanted to focus on doing a novel. Um, but to get back into that short fiction kind of mindset and do that again was, was really fun and really useful. Like the, the, the tools they give and how they're conceptualizing plot and storytelling, um, even for you know, people who, like they've told us many times, clearly know how to do this. It's still, uh, it's better than, it's, it's above. It's, it's the next kind of way to think about what you're doing to make your work more efficient, make your work more, work more poignant. It's all been, and especially with and now the other days since we've written our story with the focus on the business element and how do you uh, look for agents? How do you market yourself? How do you um, get out there? How do you take the next step? Mm-hmm. And so this isn't just focusing on celebrating what we've done. It's help us do what we're going to do next. And I yeah. feel like it's, the organization has so far been really good. Great. Yeah, it's been surreal. Uh, the workshops, everyone warned me they would be like drinking from a fire hose, and they really have been. But even more impressive has been running into authors whose work I've been reading for years in the bar after the workshops and just getting to talk one-on-one with them and get uh, career trajectory advice and just hear their take on life and uh, stories. Yeah, that's one thing they really love. The, the judges love being able to go to the bar afterwards and just... Let's get to know you now. We're going to hightail it down there after this. Yes, yeah. we are. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the plan. Um, yeah, so only only all of you will know this, and, and John, um, I really bombed the uh, acceptance speech uh, <laughs> uh, workshop earlier this week, so I'll give you a little preview of what I want to actually say, because I was kind of trying to punk you, John, sorry. Um, uh, I, if I could distill down the experience this week into one word, it would be motivation. Right. I've yeah. gotten plenty of motivation throughout my life to be a, a writer, you know, teachers being like, oh, yeah, do it. And, you know, other t- uh, places I've been published, that felt like a big motivation to do that. Um, Martin Shoemaker, who's another press winner, told me, you know, do the, the happy dance <laughs> when, you, when you win. <laughs> but this week has just been like a, a ton of very uh, good, great, amazing, all the words, writers motivating us, telling us that we could, you know, be the next generation uh, of them it's like and every step of the way of the craft motivating us to say like you can take your craft to the next level motivating us to say you can take your business to the next level as a writer everything so it feels like swallowing a big pill of that and we'll come out of here many of us you know with yeah. grease in our wheels which is good like when 
like when Nettie, when she, when she was here, I think she was volume 19 or a while ago, I just, I really liked her a lot. Sometimes you just strike it off, you know, somebody and it's, it's like, you know, she was special somehow. So I always just maintain a, a relationship with her. And I just felt, you know, watch her as she was continuing to grow. And I will do this with, with all of you as well. As you grow, I, I want you to share with me your, your successes because I'm going to put them on the Rise of Future page, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, um, and share your successes with others. One, it's going to get your, what have you got in front of other eyeballs, but it's also going to let other people that are looking to it to see, okay, so what's happening? And they themselves will see, okay, this is, there is hope. If I want to, if I want to do something, I can actually, you know, make it to the next level, but we're absolutely interested. I've I got so many friends over the many years I've been involved with this that have picked up, you know, that it, it's, it's great. And um, that's, I love, now that I've got this podcast, I just started it when on 35. That's when I began this, this podcast. So um, it's now, this will be between episode 150 and 160, and I do one a week. And it's, um, it's just great how we're able to, to do this. So on... <clears throat> What's been your favorite part of the of the workshop, other than the you know the fire hose drinking thereof? But any particular thing that impressed you the most, as you know, uh, coming here as a writer? So I I mean I don't know if impressed is the right word, but the, I think like I said before, the twenty four hour story I felt was amazing. Uh, the pressure it puts on you, and also the the realization that you can do something like that, um, yeah, is good. But I think. Just the the amount of support you feel from everybody has been, I think, the most, you know, because I've, I've been to conventions before, you know, I've met other, everybody's nice in, in this business. Everybody's pretty nice. Um, but just the, the support and, like, we're here for you and, like, you know, saying the quiet part out loud, like, like, like being, like, not just implying it, making sure they say it, like, we're here to help you. We want to. We want you to learn from us. We want you to get better, and we want to support you and help you do your next thing. Mm-hmm. I thought that that's felt really amazing while we've been here. Great. Yes, I would echo that, especially in regards to the judges and how interested they are in passing along like encouragement and their wisdom to a next generation of writers. And the same thing from my fellow winners, um, how encouraging everyone has been and everyone offering to beta read one another's stories and just knowing that I'm here with people who are going to be writing like the big novels that come out in the next few years is amazing. Yeah, you are the next generation of, of writers. It's, it's proven itself so many years now that it's not even for me a question. You are the next voices of science fiction and fantasy. What about you, Zach? Yeah, I can echo what's been said about the the 24-hour story. It's really the it's the 24-hour story in conjunction with a lot of this, a lot of what we've heard about how you can be, if you want, you can be a, a story factory. Yeah. Right. You can just sort of access the creative part of yourself, force it out onto the page, and not let the uh, logical part of you it's quite get in the way of mm-hmm. the creative part of you yeah. right you know I, I think Dean Wesley Smith was saying you you can go back to a story and put your logic brain in charge you'll just take a hammer and smash all of the creativity out of the story until you've got a really smooth plate but it's kind of boring and it's nothing so you hear a lot of that but you 
you don't exactly feel it until you do that 24-hour story and under pressure because it's not just you're saying, I'm going to do a 24-hour story. It's everybody you're here with who you respect uh, and all of these judges you also really respect are kind of watching you and like, are you going to finish this thing by 2 p.m.? Uh, and then you do and you're looking at some of the things you've written and going, whoa, there are ideas in here and there are like stinger sentences in here and things that I thought I needed days to mull over and work out and get on the page and I just did it in honestly less than 24 hours because I went to the beach for a while but <laughs> <laughs> less than 24 hours and I, now again this whole idea of motivation I'm leaving here with a major boost in confidence as a writer and it's, it wasn't even about winning the award yeah. right it's about everything that's happened while I've been here that's great and it's also everybody that's talking to you they've been there and they're not speaking from like this pulpit or from this esoteric, you know, this is how it should be done, you know, from someone who's trying to tell you what, you know, do as I say, not as I didn't do, you know. Because these guys are the, the top writers out there right now. And so everything is from people, you know, they're not asking you to do a 24-hour story. And, I mean, J Tim will joke about it, you know, better you than me. I mean, he says it every year, <laughs> you know, some variation of that particular thing. But all these guys have done it, can do it. I mean... Dean Leslie Smith, I mean, he's a serious manuscript factor himself. You know, I did, I interviewed him the other day, and he's just amazing in his, how prolific he is. But he's able to sit down and just write it, and like what you talked about there, you, you can edit it down to, like, total blandness. You need the edge on it, you need emotion, you need something that's going to, the grit. You've got to have that grit that's going to get something for you. Yeah, it's about creating an emotional impact. It's just not a. It's not just about checking all the boxes uh, of a formula. Yeah, which is one of the definitions for Mr. Hubbard and, and on art. The definition of art, it's, it, you know, it's able to create an emotional impact. So on the workshop itself, um, one of the things because you all did the Aaron Hubbard Writers of Future online workshop before coming here, and then you, I think they they touched on refresh, you know, as throughout the workshop, some of the different essays and stuff. Was there anything that really stood out for you on, on the essays that you um, studied from, from Elwin Hubbard? Uh, so mine, I think the one that was the most useful for me and seemed the most insightful and helpful for me in terms of what I struggle with mm -hmm. was the suspense essay. Having a constant idea of your reader should think that more than one thing can happen all the time like they, they they should constantly be wondering that there that, that there's at least two choices on, on you know every plate that gets put in front of your main character and that's something that when you get caught up you can get caught up in themes and world building and you know just the, the idea of your story like explaining your magic system to your reader you get caught up in these things and forget that they need to really be drawn in by the the conflict here and they need there needs to be some problem they're looking to see the character solve all the time like you can't in a short story especially you can't let that you can't let up on that for a second yeah um and yeah just i think that essay and how how he goes about conceptualizing what your job is was very helpful for me good and yourself luke the essay on research was extremely helpful because I have a tendency to just sit in my office and Google things and think that I can imagine everything. But that essay really digs into the idea of hands-on experiential research. L. Ron Hubbard uh, talks about how he used to go down, or I think, I th if I'm remembering the details of this right, he used to go down to like a waterside bar and uh, meet with sailors and just hear about 
their adventures and the things that they had done in the life they lived. And so that is extremely on point for me because one of the things that I can draw on is my background. I can draw on the specific experiences I've had, but I can also meet other people and draw on their backgrounds. That's great. Becomes part of your experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of um, beach bums in the story that I wrote in 24 hours. <laughs> uh, uh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll reflect back again on the, the idea of the, um, the story factory. Because I think probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast and are wanting to submit are obviously not pro writers. So they have jobs or they're in school. Uh, both things that I have <laughs> and, or am doing and both of you as mm-hmm. well. And you know, again, this, it didn't really hit until I did the 24-hour thing, and it was very—it uh, was an experiential learning exercise. Of, uh, I don't need to keep telling myself that because I'm, you know, I'm a therapist, so I'm seeing clients all day, and then I'm in a PhD program and I'm doing homework and all that. I don't need to tell myself that. Well, I got to wait till winter break to write a story, because I actually don't. Mm-hmm. I can do it on the weekend, and actually, not just sort of sit at the computer and dilly-dally and think about Googling things to research and whatever, (laughs) and then not get anywhere and then say, oh, well, you know, writing's hard. I can sit down and force something out, look at it, you know, next weekend and say, all right, and then submit it. And, you know, suddenly I'm writing at a pretty good pace while I'm doing other things. So this is to say everybody out there who's listening to this and thinking, when am I going to find time to submit my story to Writers of the Future? Just, like, sit down and force something out. You know, force yourself, put some kind of, um, put some kind of pressure on yourself, whatever that means in your life, to force it out, and then look at the product and think, oh, actually, this it can be as good as what I could make over time, if not better. That, that makes sense. So now, how did you work out with your jobs, with your school, with your family, whatever else you had going on, to be able to submit the story or stories over time to eventually lead to, you know, submission, now I'm getting honorable mention, now I'm getting silver honorable mention, okay, now I'm a finalist, now I'm a winner. So how'd that work for you, Storm? So uh, I started submitting while I was in my MFA program, and that was uh, probably easier in a lot of respects because my MFA program wasn't super labor-intensive. You're, you're writing a lot of stories, you're doing a lot of reading, um, but you still have a decent amount of time to yourself. So uh, that was actually kind of a, a really easy period to navigate for me. But mm-hmm. once I got out and I got a job, um, I moved back from Philadelphia to Michigan to live with, with my girlfriend, now fiance. And so I had a job then. And so it was, you have to make the time. Like you, everyone's busy. Everyone has things they're doing. And honestly, especially if, you know, you're not by yourself, if you're, uh, you know, you've got your family, uh, mm-hmm. your significant other, it's really important that you have a support system that is is behind you doing this. And my fiance Casey, has been amazing um, with supporting my desire to be a writer. She's supported me in going down. I'm, I just dropped down to four days a week at work so that I have every Friday to write now. And I couldn't do that without the support system that I have. So if you're a friend of a writer or a family member of a writer, they need your support. And uh, if you are a writer, just remember to thank the people that do support you and uh, facilitate a lot of the extra time you need to do your thing. But for your end, you need to make the time and put in the work. That's great. And yourself? 
I'm fortunate that I also have a lot of time to put into writing these days. So for me, it was a matter of delegating what of that time was going to go towards short stories and writers of the future, because my method in the past has been to put most of my time towards my novels. So when I got the first honorable mention from Joni for my first submission, that was a huge encouragement. And I realized that this contest would be a great way of judging my progress as a writer mm -hmm. because they have that scale of, of acceptances. So they have the honorable mentions, the silver honorable mentions, um, the semifinalists and finalists, and then the winners. And so I decided that if I submitted every single quarter, I would be able to, you know, hopefully win the contest, but also tell how well I was doing with the rest of my writing. So I just made time and just decided every single month I had to get something in, even if it was a resubmission of something from the past. I just had to do it. That's great. And yourself, Zach? Yeah, I think this is the, maybe uh, the genius part of this whole contest, because what you just said is basically what I would say, which is, boy, was I busy. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. in graduate school, people breathing down my neck all the time, telling me to write other stuff that I don't really want to write, <laughs> but you got to write it, right? Because you want to, you know, and this is, this, uh, you know, not an MFA where I guess you're, you could really be writing something for the contest <laughs> if yeah. you wanted to, but, uh, you know, I'm like a therapist again, so I'm writing stuff about, you know, people and, and their issues, which I guess... It's still similar to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, just like Luke is saying, you know, uh, putting, I was talking a minute ago about making sure you find a, play, a way to put pressure on yourself. And the contest can be that pressure for you. There is a deadline. We were talking all day about the importance of a deadline. Mm -hmm. You can make the contest your deadline and then suddenly it finds a way to slip into your life. There, you make room for it. And I think something really important to add here is, um, Storm is talking about the value of um, having family that can support you. Some people don't have that, right? But I would say after being here, there is a community. Mm -hmm. There's a sci-fi writer, yes. sci-fi fantasy writer community, um, spec fic community, whatever, genre, <laughs> genre fiction community that you can tap into. One way to tap into it would be the forum, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's available to you. There's a lot of great people on there who are carrying over the same feeling I get from the contest overall, which is like you said, John, that we're actually all here to support all the new writers and uh, prop us up and really help us. So there are, if you don't have the people in your life to support you in that way, maybe you won't be able to have Friday off, but you can, <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you can uh, get that support elsewhere, at least the, the emotional and the motivational support yeah. to really chase this dream down if you want to do it. Which is true. And that's something all the different things, the different facets you've got on the risingfuture.com site, because there's the blog, there's the, um, there's the forum, there's the online uh, workshop, uh, the podcast, and obviously entering the contest, either both of the contests. They're all there. I mean, that's just following the original mantra that LRH created when he said to provide a means for the aspiring writer to have their work seen and acknowledged. And so it's just, it's all built around that basic premise there. And the contest itself isn't, it's not political, it's not religious, it's not anything. In fact, the way you enter the contest is we, we know nothing about you other than the quality of your storytelling or the quality of the art. And so it's interesting, though, how for the most part, our winners over the years have all just been amazingly great people. You know, and it gets even more so every year as as the contest has long since surpassed that 
that threshold of, of recognition in the community. But it's, um, it's just interesting how the like-minded people tend to like find each other. And even on the website, if someone comes in and wants to be a jerk, a person gets one warning, you know, and if they violate that, then they're now banned from the forum and, and participating in the site because that's not what we're about. So on, on um, the subject of writing itself, how did you get started, Storm, as a, as a writer? You know, what was your transition from whatever writing your ABCDs or whatever it was that you decided, okay, I want to be a writer, and so launched your direction? I think I got kind of the first itch when I was a senior in high school. Um, I had a really great high school English teacher. Um, so when I learned to like reading, actually, was a high school senior. I didn't like to read till I was 18 years old when I read Frankenstein. But I think it was... So Mary Shelley did it to you. Yes. Okay. Um, but then I think really what made me want to write is the creative writing class I took in my undergrad. Uh, and I got lucky to have uh, Lee K. Abbott as my teacher then. He was a tremendous teacher um, and made me really love writing. And I, I think I've really just been... I've been really lucky to have great teachers that inspired me and, and encouraged me to write because they saw that I was, I was good at it and I had... I had talent, and like they said in the workshop, like talent is common, but you need, inspiring you to do the work is something that good teachers do. So I think that that's really what drove me to write is the encouragement that mm -hmm. I, I've been lucky enough to encounter. That's great. Yeah, I was a pretty imaginative kid. I was always reading as a kid. And when I was in fifth grade, I discovered The Lord of the Rings for the first time. And that was huge for me because I grew up overseas, sort of between several different cultures. And so in reading something like The Lord of the Rings, I realized that there were stories about characters who discovered that the world was a lot bigger and stranger than they thought it was. And there were characters with this same sense of unbelonging that I had. And I wanted to be able to create a home in fiction for other people the same way that Tolkien created one for me. So I, in fifth grade, I decided I was going to start writing novels and I bought a little 50 page school notebook <laughs> and I, yeah, and I told my dad that I was worried that this notebook wouldn't be long enough for my first novel. And my dad, you know, he was very encouraging, but he was like, you know, Luke, I think if you can uh, fill up those 50 pages, you'll be doing pretty well. Lo and behold, some 200,000 words later, I finished that first novel. So, you know, yeah, that's right. So I, I extended that notebook by just a little bit, just yeah. a few pages. Um, but yeah, and I've been writing ever since. But this is the first real success I've had. So that's I'm very great. grateful for it. That's a lot of words, John. <laughs> I don't have anything like that. <laughs> I was drawing little dinky little comic books, and there I still have them, but they were not, they were dinky, real dinky. Um, I, uh, I was a really snarky little kid. I got in all kinds of trouble. I don't, don't know, this say. is going to be Yeah, obvious. you're not like that now at all. <laughs> it's going to be unsurprising to anyone who knows me. Um, and, and science fiction, fantasy kind of stuff was actually something, I don't think my parents intended to do this, but it became a way to kind of rein me in. It's like something creative that my brain can chew on instead of, you know, the scenery in the room, mm -hmm. right? I distinctly remember being in, um, in first grade and my parents have every other Friday off and it's that Friday and I'm like, before school, I'm like, I'm sick, I don't feel good. And they looked at each other and they were like, you're not sick, <laughs> it's our day off. <laughs> they sent me to school and when I got back, they gave me, as a reward, they gave me a Fantastic Four comic 
And I guess they saw me just get completely enraptured by it. And from there, I started to want to be, I wanted to create that kind of stuff too. And I, you know, I've done all kinds of creative things. I've done like, going down, I've done a lot of music stuff. I did voice acting weirdly during COVID because I got invited to do that. That was bizarre, Um, but great. Uh, And like I said a few minutes ago, I took a a period off from writing after college. I kind of let it go by the wayside. And I got drawn back in with the story I told. And the second thing I wrote got um, Sheila Williams, who's the editor of Asimov's. She wanted me to do a rewrite on it, which was an amazing motivation. Here, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? And I did, I did the rewrite, and then she bought it. And that really propelled me. Like, okay, somebody thinks that I can do this, apparently. So I'm going to follow that and, I, and she's bought more stuff for me and you know I've read <laughs> this is way major. cool yeah so here I am now yeah oh that's great so on on the subject of your story so because they're all three so different and I'm always amazed every year with Rise of the Future how do they think of that you know it's I'm just amazed and I've been going through this a lot of years and there's so many different they're not even necessarily variations of a theme. They're just new themes, new concepts. Just sometimes they're like, wow, that's an amazing idea. So a little bit about your story, because this is also going to get people to want to read it. So uh, without giving too much away, uh, my story started off as a flash, just a thousand words or less. Um, and it was just the main inspiration was the, the kind of awe-inspiring technology that's in it. And that's that this civilization for entertainment changes the sunset of a planet to match the sunset of different planets. Um, That's so cool. Thank you. Oh, you got to read it. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That's awesome. Just purely for their guest's entertainment. (laughs) And uh, so it it started off, that was the inspiration. But then the more I write it, and this is true with almost any story any writer starts, it became more about conceptualizing what that technology could be used for, how that could affect people. And so then it became about um, like what sunsets mean to people and what that can uh, kind of encapsulate to somebody who sees their sunset reproduced somewhere else. And you know, the themes of alienation, isolation, um, kind of awe. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that it started off just about that, tech, that inspiration for that technology. And then you just, from there, it's just about being honest about what that means to people. Good. Yeah, it's, it's just... I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it three times in this interview. It's just a brilliant story. Thank you. <laughs> I can't wait for you to say it that much. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah. So my story, "How to Steal the Plot Armor," is a comedy satire heist, and I knew that I wanted to write comedy because I had uh, submitted some other comedy stories to the contest, and they had done pretty well. One of them was a, a semifinalist, I believe. So I also knew that during COVID, the judges were probably getting a lot of darker stories just because of everyone processing the world. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I wanted to just write something that could maybe cheer people up and give people a little bit of a laugh. So I looked at the things I was reading at that time, and I was reading Idols of the King by Tennyson, and I was reading uh, another comedy called uh, Kill the Farm Boy by Delilah S. Dawson and Kevin Hearn. And I had been reading some other Arthurian stuff for a while, which, you know, 
Arthurian stuff, La Morte Arthur takes itself really seriously and just has all these morality stories in it. So I just wanted to kind of poke fun at stories that take themselves too seriously, which, don't get me wrong, I love La Morte Arthur and I love Idols of the King, but I uh, also love stories that are a little bit self-aware and know how to create humor based on their genre. So that was how my story came about. Great. There's also a story that was written by Owen Hubbard called Typewriter in the Sky, which the, the lead author is, his name is Horace Hackett. You know, so the whole thing is poking fun at, at uh, the Pulp Fiction writers, you know, and, they, and how the, the plot was going. And he writes his, his uh, best friend into the story. And, you know, he, he falls, hits his head, and he, he, so he's now in his story. And he knows how he's going to end because he's the bad guy and his villains are always killed at the end. And so he's in there trying to save himself from getting, from getting killed. And, he, and they're moving along and he's, he's changing the story. And then all of a sudden, the whole story, the Hackett then just changes everything. You know, he's got his, it's in like the 1700s, but he's got a Steinway piano, which obviously didn't exist. And these different things that happens there, which obviously he didn't have this, his his proper research done, but it's, it's quite humorous. And a lot of the, several of the judges have liked that as their, one of their favorite stories. It's called recursive science fiction. And um, uh, some, of the, some of his pen names he meets in the bar at the end. And, and so it's just, it's a real fun, but it's, it's definitely satire, you know, po poking fun at, at um, along the same lines that you're just talking about there. Mm. So what about yours, Zach? You didn't say his story. Oh. <laughs> yeah. If you'll say it to him, do, you might not say not it to me. Like you gotta say it to me, so you better one. say it to him. <laughs> no, because it is. Like I said all the stories I've read, and they're brilliant. And f from your story, there's just that it is true that 37 is a bit lighter in general for that very reason. You know, the pandemic was so on the planet. You know, just so oppressive. So it lightened it up and it made a really good counterpoint to everything else that people have been experiencing. So yours was one of those that led the way on that. And now to one of the darkest and depressing stories <laughs> from the two volumes. Um, yeah, my story, uh, I started writing it the summer before I went into my master's program. And it was I was just kind of thinking, again, it started with imagery, right? Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about the idea of a drone pilot and, you know, like, let's go a little bit near future. What could piloting a drone for the military be like a step into the future? So just playing with that imagery. And then I started my program, obviously, couple in family therapy. I'm learning a whole lot about, you know, depression and anxiety, PTSD, PTSD obviously being a big one in the military. And I started thinking, what would it be like if, you know, our future wars are, you know, kind of all sort of drone pilot scenarios. What does PTSD look like in that situation? And it totally changed the story, right? Because just what was on my mind at the time really altered where I was going with it uh, and made it obviously way better than it was. <laughs> going, <laughs> going from just some images to something I, that I think uh, the art for the piece done by Brock Aguirre, who's also here, um, true firebrand if there ever was one. Yes. yes. Uh, he, he, I talked about this the other day, John, but he like perfectly captured the feeling of the piece, which he, the look on the character's face in the image and the illustration 
um, the color palette that he used totally captures that feeling of what if you were underground inside of a computer, it's like, or inside of a computer, and the only thing you had to talk to was a robot that couldn't pass a Turing test. So it's really just a chatbot, <laughs> and how attached you become to that thing, and like psychologically what sort of develops from there. And had a lot well, of as long as you got a nice girlfriend like you gave him, yes. I was like, yes. whoa, yeah. <laughs> that was trippy. Yeah. <laughs> so who is that guy? <laughs> what kind of a mind would develop something like that? Was uh, somebody who's um, doing blood therapy? Because <laughs> 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 yeah. I was when I read that, I was like, I had to read that a couple times. It was like it was so, it was so different. But it's true what you did on that thing on you know on what would that be like in that future scenario where you know he's there mining the. It's the it's it's also weird because it. Obviously, it came out. The book actually came out in April of 2020, which is right when the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. And that story is really about being alone by yourself, yeah. only able to communicate with other humans through screens, pretty much. Mm. Not, be not because you have to because of COVID, but that's just kind of how that's the story yeah. works. That's what the future kind of looks like. And it's just weird that it landed at that time because everybody in the world was kind of going through that. Okay, what if I was kind of in a box by myself? only able to communicate through screens. Um, it's very relevant for writers since it's such yeah, an isolating yes. field. Exactly. Yeah. We heard that today a lot, the yeah. isolation. Wow, that's great. So on your future plans now as a writer, what, where do you see yourself going now as a writer? Like you got, obviously it's been short story, but novels is where the money's going to be. Short stories keeps your hand in the, you know, in, in the pot they're going on. And it's sometimes you got that, I can do something this weekend. You can pop out a short story, and if you've got, if you become best buds with the editor Asimov, then more power to you. <laughs> Definitely helps. <laughs> so, what what do you see for your future? Uh, well, I've spent the last pretty much almost two years now. It'll be two years in November working on uh, my first novel. I'm hoping to finish the epilogue pretty much when I get back from this because mm -hmm. I've been too busy to work on it while I've been here. Yeah, send it to me. Yes, and send it to, to Zach. <laughs> Uh, and Luke, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, But then I think while I'm waiting for that feedback, I, I'll probably, uh, I have a catalog of short story ideas that while I've been working on the novel, I've kind of been uh, saving. Mm -hmm. I might go through those and, you know, in a week, try to knock all, all however many there are, that's how many days I'm going to give myself to knock all of them out into drafts, get them to my readers and hopefully start firing off submissions again for short stories. And then as my feedback from novel trickles in, I'll take that in and I'll do my second draft. And then I'll try to find a publisher or slash agent, whatever, for that. And as I'm doing that, I'm going to start my next novel. I'm just, it's going to be, I'm going to focus on novels. Um, when I have, is, it a series, is it going to be a series you're doing or are these all one-offs? This, this, the current novel I'm working on is planned to be the first book in a series. Um, and I don't, uh, I, I'll probably start the sequel, especially if I'm happy with my second draft edits. I'll start the sequel, but but if not, I'm I'm perfectly happy to start another novel, um, a different novel in a different universe. But most of my time is going to be devoted to novels now. And when I feel that my circulation desk is getting a little light, I'll hammer out some short stories to keep, so that I'm keeping things in out to markets. Right. So that, that work's not idle. Because I want to keep you want to keep your name out there. You want to keep mm -hmm. and because keeping your short story craft sharp 
is going to keep your novel writing sharp because short story craft is so is such a different kind of tighter set of skills um, that I think is important for novel writing also. Good, good. That makes sense. Yeah, like Storm, I'm also more focused on long-form things right now. I naturally write long. A lot of my short stories turn into novels. So I am currently working on my fifth novel, which may sound like a good start, except the first three are terrible. <laughs> so Sorry, Is this counting the one from fifth grade? Yes, it is. Okay. So I have to admit that. that Full disclosure. Yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not, I'm not good. Trying to Definitely still counts. Definitely counts. It's a good point, though. If you wrote 200,000 um, words, even if they're not yeah. in English, it, good, it counts. Right. Good catch, yeah. <laughs> Riddled with spelling errors. And uh, yeah, it was my cliche chosen one fantasy that everyone writes go. before they know what they're yeah. doing. So. Yeah, uh, but I am working on the first sequel that I've written, which I'm finding is a totally different experience. But I'm hoping to just get a whole trilogy ready so that uh, when I finally get one of them published, I can just, uh, you know, we've heard a lot this week about consistency and quality, and those being the two hallmarks of a good professional writer. So that is my focus right now. Um, I've be I have begun to send out query letters for the fourth one, and uh, I'm still waiting to hear back on some of those, so. Good. And Mr. Zach. Yes, my plans. Your plans. My plans. I set a goal for myself, which was three professional publications before I'm allowed to work on a novel. That's a somewhat arbitrary number <laughs> derived from the SFWA yep. rule book. Uh, and Right before I came here, I sold another story to Asimov's, which actually brings me to four counting writers of the future. So you cheated. So I cheated a little bit already. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I was thinking, that won't happen until I'm done with this PhD program. I've got time. And so now I'm having some overlap issues. I think I'm going to uh, undercut myself. I said earlier, you know, oh, I can always write. I think I, I have, you know, a big novel idea playing around upstairs. There's a talking dog. It's going to be great. Right? <laughs> and and, and uh, I think next summer, I'm going to put a lot of elbow grease into that. And in the meantime, coming off of the motivation from everything we've done this week, try to do what I said earlier, which is just on the weekends, pump out these stories and mm -hmm. try to build that resume up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that I can, once I'm working on that novel and maybe pumping it out really fast, maybe not deem style no not no. 70 a not year 70 a year no but um <laughs> but maybe like really pump it out with some of this energy um and then have a nice little resume to kind of use yeah. to propel the the novel forward the novel with the talking dog i'm putting that i'm saying that out loud now to actualize it because it does have a talking dog <laughs> does the dog die is that a spoiler? <laughs> yeah, it's a spoiler. It's a spoiler. You can, you can spoil when people die. You can't spoil yeah, when pets can't die. You can't, uh, they can't also told us that. this week not to kill the dog. That, you know. but, <laughs> you kill the owner, but not the dog. Well, I, I wonder, though, if a dog talks, if that rule goes away. Because uh, now the dog's yeah. not really a dog anymore. Is, so. is the dog a jerk? Then, then <laughs> I can't tell you that either. I can't tell you that either. I also haven't written this book, so we won't know until I've written it the, the degree to which the dog is a jerk. I, I, I'm kind of rooting for the dog to be a jerk, if I'm being honest. Are you? <laughs> I, want, I want a jerky talking dog. I'll give you a synopsis later. You can tell me if the dog, you think the dog should be a jerk or not. So as Dan Brown was a, uh, a lawyer before becoming a, just a full-time author, are there any other... Uh, 
therapists, people that are that that switched over and said, okay, good, I've got that, but I'm going to become a, just a full-time writer. I'm pretty sure N.K. Jemison is a, a clinical uh, psychologist, or or she had, or she has a PhD in counseling. Ninety-nine percent sure that's yeah. the first one that comes to mind. I don't know if she ever practiced, but I did see an interview where she said that that's what her PhD is in. So, and I mean. Can't get much bigger than NK Jensen. No, so, not right now. <laughs> no. So there you go. Is answering your question? Yeah. So um, NK Jemison, Zach B. I was just, I was just <laughs> wow, curious. Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't know if there's anyone else. I'm sure that there is. I think I think it's probably a fairly popular field to jump to writing fiction because you're like, oh, I've got a lot of ideas. That's unethical, though, if you're out there and you're a therapist. Don't do that. <laughs> just change the name. Yeah. Well. Anagrams. A little more than that. Anagrams. That's all you need. Right. right. (laughs) Word scrambles. Yeah. So on, um, is your, so Zach, so is your future, do you envision yourself as being a a major name author? Is that something that you've got as an end game you like to go for? Or is this something you want to? I don't we all want that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's the dream. Here's here's the good thing about at least therapy as a job is similar to what Storm was saying earlier. Like, you know, I have this benefit in my particular situation where I can get that Friday off and mm-hmm. that becomes your time to write. Um, I work in private practice so I can kind of schedule my life how, well, once I'm done with the PhD. Yeah. If my PhD advisors listen to me right now and they're shaking in their boots, this person's never going to finish their dissertation. <laughs> right? No, I promise I'll finish. Um, but I can kind of schedule my life any way I want and that means I can make time to yeah. write and to do these novels that I have planned you know going to get all these talking animals out there in the world uh, <laughs> we're going to have cats for better or worse. worse for better or worse mm-hmm. yeah um, so yeah the, the the goal would be to be the, the well also you say big name author but we found out what that actually means this week which is just yeah. literally your name is big on the cover so we could all be big name authors tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> Uh, through Amazon. Yeah, the, the answer to your question is yes, that is the that is definitely That's the your objective. So all three of your objective is is to do that. So uh, have you developed like every year when uh, all the winners get together and, and it's a bit of a, of an anomaly this year with 36 and 37, they've become a bit of a a click or a group, you know, where they just they follow along like, you know, from volume 1 Dean and and um Nina, you know, they they're still friends. They were Winners in Volume One, and each year there's different ones. You know, I, I, you know, I talk to somebody. So you still friends, you know. So like Eric Flint, there, you know, he talks about his his friends he had, and Sean Williams still has his friends from their years, and that's been like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So, do you see yourselves like, or have you already started working out like you're continuing what we're going to do when we go back home? Because right now you're intensely together, and then you're going to be not intensely together in a few days. Lots of us have talked about starting uh, write, like writers groups. Like we'll probably start a Facebook group at least to have all of us in it. But um, I know that bo- like both Zach and Luke are reading my novel. Um, Andy Dibble's also reading it. Leah Ning is reading it. So I mean that's half the people who would have bought it. So maybe not a good idea on my part. So yeah, I mean big collab, and that's the other thing they talk about in the workshop is be a resource for each other. Like uh, editors are expensive, but if you've got talented writers that will be your beta readers, that's and I I don't know if. They'd say just as good, but it's it's real close. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, it, yeah, all of us, I think, are willing to be a resource for each other. Yeah. And have you struck up any relationship with your artists? We've had a lot of, a lot of the, um, I realize several of them are not here because of the pen, pandemic they couldn't get here, but there's been a lot of partnerships that have started up where an, a writer wants something for their, their cover art or they, they have dreams of doing children's books, you know, and so they need, they need an artist to do their work with them on like that. So that's something too. So I'll just plug my novel again there. Uh, me and Arthur, Arthur Bowling, he, yeah. he drew my novel's map. Oh, really? Yeah. It oh, hangs. Good. It's 22 by 24 right over my desk. Oh, <laughs> Hand drawn, great. yeah. So um, what do you see in terms of yourselves now as an, anticipating or establishing the fact that you are the future of science fiction and fantasy? What's your anticipation for the future of science fiction and fantasy? How do you see it? Is it, is it hopeful? Is it, you know, where it's... Because you can, you can write like we wrote there and as, as able the air, but it can also come across and say, well, it, it's, it's a downer, but it's also a prophecy, you know, which doesn't have to, which then by very definition doesn't make it a downer. It just makes it, okay, look at guys, this is something that can happen if something doesn't change. So how do you see, you know, especially just coming out of the pandemic, what, how, what do you see as the future of science fiction and fantasy based upon how you're looking at it now? Oh, that's a big question, John. <laughs> <laughs> you could take that in a lot of directions. Yeah. I, yeah um, I like to think positively. I like to think that science fiction in particular, we talked this week about how the way that kind of traditional publishing breaks these things apart. I mean, like puts, you know, fantasy is only 20% of the market and science fiction is only 20% of the market and whatever else. Horror. Children's books. Yeah, children's books, yeah. But actually, if you, if you smush those all together, that's wonder. This is something that Dave Farland told us. And when you smush those all together, it's actually like more than half of the market. So I think that there is a hunger for this and that science fiction and fantasy continues to grow as a very popular art form. And what, what's actually written in science fiction and fantasy uh, gives ideas like you were saying, either things to avoid or directions to go or ways to think about society, new frameworks, all of that. It gives society that direction. And if that's more than half of what people are most popularly reading, it'll help to drive the actual fiction that's being written. Whatever ideas we all come up with will actually help to drive some of the directions that society takes. And I even I think about how earlier in the 20th century, they actually used to invite science fiction authors into like Department of Defense and NASA meetings to talk, to just be there in the room and say crazy things with all these scientists around to try and mine some of that creative energy to think about how are we actually going to get to Mars? How are we actually going to, you know, have space wars with China or whatever it is that we're planning on doing in, in the future? I know Asimov was was there for some of that. Heinlein um, was there. Heinlein was there, yeah. So that's, there's, that's always been a strand, mm -hmm. and I think it just continues to grow as this wonder block of fiction kind of drives a lot of people's imagination who then finish reading this short story that one of us has written on their coffee break and walks back into the Pentagon. <laughs> or someplace like that. Or someplace yeah. like that, yeah. You know, I think we are a part of the future of sci-fi and fantasy, but if I'm honest, I think that the real future of fiction is diversity, and I think it is going to be, you know, we're, we're three white guys sitting here. So I don't want to pretend that we are the only future, but I think that where we come in 
is being able to take the things that are unique about our experiences and finding parallels for those and other people's experiences and finding ways that we can create fiction that is just more representative of the world and all of its fullness. Um, I talked earlier about providing stories that give people a sense of homecoming and a sense of a place to belong. And I think that that is part of what we can do. The The fantasy and sci-fi tribe tends to be fairly diehard, um, and it tends to be also a place where people who maybe don't don't fit into other parts of the world can just find like a found family. So I, I think that that is something that we'll all focus on. Okay, good. Yeah, I was going to say just it seems like as uh, someone said in one of the speakers said today that science fiction used to dwarf fantasy. And now fantasy is the big thing right now, and especially epic fantasy as it's growing. I think that there's uh, a big desire for like – because that creates a shared world. Like people across cultures, across uh, generations can find uh, a culture of space and they can share it and they can interact there. And uh, it, it builds a lot of bridges. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's kind of the future. And that's, it's the future because it's also that's what science fiction and fantasy has always done. It's build bridges. It's, it's expanded. It has reconceptualized what the world and the future and people can be because – Science fiction is us kind of casting forward what humanity is into the future because humanity is this, this constant, striving, empathic thing. It is a, a, a culture where we rely on each other, we lean on our neighbor, and that, that, that perpetuates, that, that humanity continues. And fantasy is casting it back to show that that's how it's always been. Mm-hmm. So it just creates this bridge that you recognize as this perpetual kind of shape of humanity and humanness. Um, the function of aliens is show that humanity can look different. Right. Um, so I think that, that that will continue, and the idea of what we include in that continues to expand as, as diversity becomes a, a bigger driver and uh, things like that. And so I think it's always has been about bridges, and it always will be. That's good. It, but one thing it's um, I've observed so many times over the years, having now my own bridge of Writers of the Future, is that usually it's been five or ten years ahead of the curve. What I see winners writing becomes what's being read by the general audience, what's being published out there in five or ten years, because that's your curve to, to actually make it there. So steampunk, all over the place in Rise of the Future, five or ten years before it became like the really hot topic. You know, people downloading their consciousness onto the web on the net mm, that was yeah. just like all over the place half a dozen years later we went through a whole thing there of of um of that happening so i've observed a lot where rise of future and this i mean orson scott card talks about it um quite a bit when he talks about the contest it's like this is the future you know and i got what you said about you know it's like we're three white guys you are three white guys for sure and there's the Nettie Okorafors, and there's the Nini Kariki Hoffmans, and they're all out there. But from my perspective, they're also all writers of the future. Yes. You know? Yes. So that's what I'm talking about like that. So it's, it's maybe as a collective I'm asking this, mm-hmm. but you're going to have your perspective, what you've got right now, what you've gotten, and the value of science fiction to society. Because it also, in, in, a, in an era, and I'm not trying to go, you know, now getting all, you know, mental and everything on here you know but in a, but in the exactly 
But in a society where, you know, um, in a lot of areas like hope and um, reassurance and somebody saying, okay, lend a helping hand with, without any strings attached is, is always suspect. Yeah. Mm, yes. You know, and that's, that's the biggest hurdle I've got with Writers of the Future. You know, <laughs> many of your most esteemed guests have told us that. Yeah. <laughs> have told yeah. us. They were like, they were like, really, John? Yeah. Are you, there's no, there's no catch. And you keep saying there's no catch. <laughs> He's like, but, are you sure? Yeah. There's, there's really not. There's it really is, not. is, there's no entry fee. Uh, our rooms are free. Our flights are free. Like it's, and we get, we get, not only do we get prize money, you get paid a pro rate for your story. Um, and you get all, those connections. You get the connections. And yeah. it's all, it's really, it, it's a heartening thing because it's, it makes you want to get there so that you can get back. Yeah, it really is family, and it's a huge family, you know, but you can find other people, you know, that's why these guys come back. You know, you've got these, these past winners, they come in and just, you know, they really want to do it. They, they, it was that important to them. And Martin Shoemaker, how he tells his story, he like, he's a, yeah, right, John. Yeah, right, John. It took him a year to realize. I still yeah. sometimes can't get over that earlier today. I was, I just rode the elevator with Nancy Cress. That was just my afternoon. Yeah. That's like, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, that just happened to me today. It's happened to everyone. We've been talking about seeing She's Nancy always in the elevator. She's always going somewhere. Yeah. I had dinner with her yesterday, and she yeah. said she was going to adopt me. So I'm trying to get that in writing. <laughs> Sorry, Mom and Dad. <laughs> but anyway, this has been great. Um, we've gone through an hour, and I knew it would go really fast. It was just, I could not with, with you three, <laughs> especially with this one. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. It's also been globally syndicated on the United Public Radio Network. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you.